Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech the podcast that curates the collection of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm gradually building my very own custom Ghibli Panini sticker album. So join us on our live quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So Jake, we're back here once more introducing our final British Museum live discussion. The live tour has to end sometime. We're not Bob Dylan, are we? Exactly. And we're ending on quite a film to talk about. Yeah, I I know that listeners may be thinking, didn't they just talk about this one? But Mm. this conversation, in a way, made me think, well, we barely scratched the surface. Exactly. So this is The Wind Rises, which was one of the final episodes of the previous miniseries. But even within that episode, I think we said that this is a film that was going to take residence in our brains for some time. And we couldn't talk about it in that usual 15-minute segment. Immediately after watching The Wind Rises, it felt like the film from all the ones that we've seen that I'd most like to go straight back into and learn more about and see how it would change and become more rewarding the more that you watch it. Exactly, and what a panel we we had. So Nicole Roumanier, who was on our My Never Totoro episode, was back once again. She's the curator of the Manga Exhibition at the British Museum, um, which this screening was in support of. But our second guest was someone we've had in mind for some time. It's Alex Dudokdovit, who... I remember way back when he first started his career writing about animation for Sight and Sound. Um, he wrote some wonderful pieces on his Takahata, their obituary for him. But since then, he's just recently been appointed the Europe editor of Cartoon Brew, which is an essential news and opinion resource for the animation industry. And he, I think maybe he first publicly mentions this on our podcast, so mm-hmm. it's an exclusive, but he has a book coming out. He's writing a book on Grave of the Fireflies for the BFI Classics series yeah. of uh, so if of we ever do a redux once we've truly run out of episodes and have to do all of these films again mm-hmm. grave of the fireflies i think we know who to call if we want to put ourselves through that again <laughs> my soul can only take so many viewings of that film jake but anyway this is a fantastic discussion full of insight into what is quite a thorny and knotty film um, but before we throw to that, just want to say once more thank you to Bryony Smith and Freddie Matthews who put together this program and asked us to come down and talk about Ghibli in front of the audience. And if you were there attending these screenings, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, and if you're one of those people that caught Michael in a stage dive, we really appreciate it.
so honoured to be asked to host these Q&As. And this is, you know, very sadly, the last of the run of four we've done. But we do have a, an amazing panel of experts here to talk about The Wind Rises. We have Nicole Roumanier, the lead curator of the Manga Exhibition, um, which is running here at the British Museum until the end of the month. And we have Alex Dudok-Devitt, animation expert, writer for Sight and Sound, Europe editor of Cartoon Brew. And uh, we can talk about your book now, can't we? Do you want to give a, a mention to your book? Because this is the sort of room you can plug it to. <laughs> Um, so I've just started writing a book on the bleakest of all the Ghibli films, uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Any Grave of the Fireflies fans in the room? Yes. Uh, is that a film that you can whoop? <laughs> this is the sort oh. of room where it wouldn't get a whoop. Yeah. So who here was watching The Wind Rises for the first time tonight? Wow, a lot of first viewers. Were you Ghibli fans beforehand or was this a first time you were? Okay, cool. So you're, you're digging deeper into the canon as we have in the podcast so yeah. far. But we can uh, dig deeper into the film now, can't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Nicole, you were here for the first episode of this series on My Neighbor Totoro, so it's lovely to have you back for this one. Um, we're bookending with a Miyazaki film. And uh, how was it for you revisiting this film and seeing it now after the journey that we've been on? Well, I have to say that it's, uh, it's incredibly powerful and I found myself just completely absorbed. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this film, but first of all, maybe seeing it here, seeing it, um, you know, in this context after, you know, our, these four sets of films and having it finally as the ending, um, I think it's perfect. I, I really, I think it's compelling seeing it, you know, as many, many, many times, but seeing it on this very big screen for the first time, actually, I started to actually see some, what are some of the signs of the buildings. You could start to identify things. It just makes you dig, deep, digger, deeper and further in. And then, um, I, I don't know, I've come without, I, to be honest, at the first, I love this film. Then I had a little bit of a problem with it. Mm. <laughs> I love it again. <laughs> so I'm very, very happy. Yeah. Could you take us on that journey, liking, not so liking, and of then coming back around? What convinced you well, in the end? Well, what convinced me, first of all, um, I saw this film first when it just came out in Japan. Mm. And um, I went, I, I couldn't believe it, I went with the top editor of Shogakan and an academic from Gakushin University, and we were sitting there, and I thought, I can't believe I'm getting them to see an anime with me, <laughs> you know, and, and they were so absorbed, they were crying, they were totally into it, and I, and I, and I loved it at first, but I, I hadn't really fully absorbed um, some of its uh, messages, and also its, its slight ambivalence, but also skirting on the issues of, um, in the 1930s, of thought control, of, uh -huh. Um, build up to the war, of poverty, of a lot of decisions that were made and um, um, going towards the war. And and so then looking at it again, um, I started looking at it a little bit more crit critically, all the tobacco that was being <laughs> smoked <laughs> on those trays. You know, and, and you just start looking at things. And then I was thinking um, a, little bit, a little bit more about certain stories that were left. So f when they went to... Um, and they went to uh, uh, the, the retreat and um, the German spy that was there, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know, all these kind of kind of dangling little bits. I started thinking a little bit more about them and feeling that they should have been tied together. But actually, now coming back and seeing it again, I realized what it is is it's just a series of, um, in a way, dreamscapes that uh, right. that that come together. I, I have to say, just personally, two things that really always make me. Um, move me, and in fact, it brings me to tears. One is, um, I worked at Tokyo University, and where that fire, where they showed the fire, 
and also the sound, you know, when it goes roar. And I, I've been through a few earthquakes in Japan, but not, nothing major, major, major like that. But I've heard that it does make that sound. You know, people do say that it does make that sound. But I've sat a long time outside that Tokyo University air, um, library. My office was right next to it uh, that burnt up. And it still leaves a scar. Um, that the books, they had fantastic libraries. They were all decimated. Everything was gone. It's, um, the whole campus is, is redone from in the post-war, in the post-fire period. It really, it, it marks a huge break between the past and then the future mm -hmm. Japan. But also on a personal level, um, I lived with my grandmother um, growing up and she was dying of tuberculosis. And um, so I saw her um, gradually decline and die. And I have to say, that the similarities are really um, moving. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's this reality to this film that you know, maybe a lot of you would realize or think about, but when you're physically you know, in Tokyo or when you physically see what he's portraying, it, it, it actually strikes a chord. Yeah, that's something we may come to on this panel, this idea that Miyazaki, who was the great fantasy filmmaker, you, he, had, he had these great escapist classics from My Neighbor Totoro through Mononoke or Spirited Away, these fantasy worlds, this was his most grounded and, uh, and historical film. Uh, Karizawa, where, the, the, where they went for, you know, where he went obviously was sent on a break. And in the very beginning of Karizawa, you see a tennis scene mm -hmm. with the girls playing tennis when he first, land, you know, he first goes there in the, kind of this wooded cabin. And in the corner you see the tennis. I think that's a conscious reference to where the emperor who just retired met his wife on the tennis court in Karizawa. Okay. So I think that there, you know, there there are constant little references throughout there. This mm. is what's so fascinating about these panels is that we, you know, Jake and I come at, come at this as as film critics and fans first and foremost. And I, I remember when this film came out, it was something that one of our previous panelists, Rayla Dennison, mentioned. When this film came out, most of the Western press skirted around the political controversy and were more horrified that there was so much smoking. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> the Miyazaki film. Before doing the podcast and like before going into a room with you to talk about it, I had no idea that this was a controversial film. But Alex, you lived in Japan as well. And like you, both of you obviously would have realized seeing this film how controversial it would have been. I don't, I don't think it was only controversial in Japan. Uh, I remember it played it premiered at the Venice Film Festival and there the jury, someone on the jury said something to the effect that this film was diminished in their view because it was politically dodgy. Um, so how is it politically dodgy? So just to recap, this, this film came out in Japan in 2012, 2013, sorry, um, and was instantly attacked by both the left and the right, <laughs> um, by the right-wingers because they said it's too fatalistic about war, it makes war seem too too much of a downer, uh, too much of a downer about the Japanese national spirit. An attack from the left um, because they said that the film was too kind to this person who was behind the Mitsubishi Zero plane, which was a killing machine used in Pearl Harbor, used in kamikaze attacks. Um, so how did, how did this confusion happen? I think like, I mean, it's interesting. If you read Miyazaki's writings and, and, and his interviews, he's a contradictory guy anyway. He constantly goes back on what he said about important issues. And probably his biggest contradiction is that he's, he's an outspoken pacifist. And you see that, you feel that in his films, all his films, and you see that in his writing. And at the same time, he's obsessed with military machines <laughs> and vehicles, and he's been drawing them basically since he was a child. Um, and this film, The Wind Rises, is partly about this contradiction. 
and that's not me saying that. That's the Toshio Suzuki, the big kind of producer, the the guy who guides Studio Ghibli to some extent. When he was announcing this film at a press conference in Japan, he said, "We're making this film. I made Miyazaki make this film in order for him to confront this contradiction mm. in him. Like, how can you love war machines while hating war?" And yeah. No, and we spoke about this just just now. You had your own way with this film that you almost flip flopped in terms of your appreciation of it, right? Where, where do you sit with it now, and particularly this conflict? I like it more and more when I see it. When I first saw it, it was in it had just come out in France, uh, and the storm of controversy had reached France. It was definitely a thing there as well, and it was so big that that clouded my vision of the film the whole way through. I was sitting there thinking, is this you know on what side is Miyazaki wrong to depict this character in this way or is he not and the more I rewatch it the more I see the richness of the themes apart from that and the, the the different ways in which Miyazaki plays with visual motifs and I've realized it's actually one of his most kind of subtle and uh, sophisticated films yeah Alex uh, I think it was a couple of days before this screening you tweeted about the fact that well even though in this very set of screenings, we have shown a film in which raccoon dogs with magical <laughs> testicles wage a war against industrial landscapers. <laughs> you tweeted that you're, ready, you're excited to talk about the strangest Studio Ghibli film, yeah. The Wind Rises. Why do you think this is the strangest Studio Ghibli? Strangest because I felt like I didn't know where Mia, what, I found it hard to know what Miyazaki was saying, and usually I don't have that with his films. Usually, however wacky the plots or the characters, you have a sense of a message kind of shining through and, and the message is very consistent through his work. And in here, I think the message is basically the same things about, you know, how war is ultimately bad and destructive and yet yeah, how throwing yourself with energy into something can be good. That's kind of the contradiction here. But it took me a while to realize that. Um, I think basically where, 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 where you stand on the film depends on a large part on whether you, whether Jiro is a plausible character for you, whether he can be the designer of this killing machine while at the same time retaining enough integrity and dignity that we can admire him. And let's be honest, the film does admire him. The film is dedicated to him even. At the end, there's a dedication. Um, and also, apart from this characterization of Jiro, it's also the question of, is Miyazaki allowed to make a film that uses this incredibly controversial period in Japanese history, the fascism in the war? Can he make, is he allowed to make a film about that without m using that platform to more explicitly condemn the war. J j just to kind of give a little bit more context on this, the, the, the climate in which this film came out in Japan was, the, po the politics were very interesting. So Japan had this war and then it never really kind of openly discussed and owned up to the wit in the way that say Germany did. Um, People often say Japan has never apologized for the war officially. That's not quite true. There have been prime ministers in the 90s who very unambiguously said what we did was wrong and we apologized to the countries who were victimized. But apologies don't necessarily last forever. And since the 90s, the country's kind of returned to the right more and more, become more nationalistic. Just months before this film came out in Japan, Shinzo Abe, the current prime minister, was elected for the first time on a platform of uh, Remilitarizing and restoring some of Japan's national pride. And obviously, this stirred up a lot of support for him and a lot of anger from the other side to the point where remilitarization, and just for context, Japan is constitutionally forbidden from having an army, the only country in the world that has that. 
But Shinzo Abe wants to change that and, and restore the military. And this issue has become more toxic than Brexit. <laughs> you know? And so anyone who's saying anything even tangential about the war is expected to really make a statement unambiguously about where they stand on, on this. Yeah. And The Wind Rises doesn't do that. So how does Miyazaki come off uh, create, creating a work like this? Is, almost, is that naivety? Is that uh, b being stubborn? I, I don't know. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He's got to the point in his career where he, he, he's an outspoken person and he has a message he wants to get across. And the message isn't, we need to not rebuild our army. Uh -huh. He's expressed that in articles that, he's, that he wrote in tandem with the release of this film. But what he's saying in this film is, how strange it is that humans can be this conflicted. How strange it is that they can essentially shut out a large part of, that, 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 they, can, that they can basically shut out their own responsibility for something. Um, and I think he's kind of, you know, he said in an interview, like, if I was alive in the Second World War, or if I was an adult in the Second World War, I too would have gone along with the regime. And that's not just hypothetical, because animators in the war were co-opted by the government to make propaganda. So he's really thinking he would have probably done that. He's saying it would have taken an enormous effort and a, a certain very specific character to rebel against that regime. And we shouldn't judge Jiro for not doing that. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, how sad it is that humans are that it's so fascinating complex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so fascinating that all of this ancillary material exists where Hei Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, Toshio Suzuki, they're all writing books, publishing articles mm. about the works they make, about each mm. other's works, about mm. the industry in general, about Japanese politics. We as international, maybe anglophonic, uh, you, know, you know, people who don't, can't read or speak Japanese, we don't get that. We don't see that context. We just see this film. And the film has so many conflicts within it. Maybe part of this central conflict is the fact that this is a biography of Jiro Horikoshi. It's also a part adaptation of the, the, the novels of this lost generation who came of age during the war. Mm. It's also a pseudo semi-autobiography or, or apologia for Miyazaki's life as, a, as an, art, an artist and how to square that with being a family man. Mm. And, it, and that, that creates, I mean, that creates quite a bit of friction for us in terms of how do you read this film? Is it it is Jiro a sympathetic figure when he's there with his dying wife, but he also has one hand on his sketchbook at the mm. same time. I think it's... Cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all of this that out of all the films that we've watched now for this series, where there's like 18 films, this was the one where as soon as it finished, I was most curious to revisit it mm -hmm. because of all of mm. this stuff that you're not able to get on that first time viewing like so much of this and your understanding of the films between both of you comes from that rewatch. Could, could I just mention something though and maybe it's relevant or maybe it isn't relevant but you had um, the wonderful Hosono Hitomi on yeah. the yeah. panel, um, this fantastic maniacal um, ceramic artist who did the wonderful manga ceramic in the, in the British Museum a manga exhibition, but also in the Japanese galleries, you see her thousand-leaf vase, and her attention to detail, her fanaticism, her passion is overriding. It overrides her whole entire life. Mm -hmm. She is, you know, I'm sure she has fun too, but she works incredibly, mm -hmm. incredibly hard. And that in general, from what I've seen working with a lot of craftspeople in Japan, that's is my specialty is is craft and, and, and ceramic, is this incredible detail of, Folk, fidelity to, to material, they're very 
true to whatever material they've chosen, be it a mm. um, creating an aircraft or be it porcelain. Mm. You know, so she's true to porcelain. She's not going to go dabble in stoneware. She's going to stick to that material and then just push it to this unbelievable extent until it's kind of perfect. And that, in fact, that obsession is very celebrated. And something that is actually um, that you see with the living national treasures, you see it with her, you see with craftspeople that sort of, um, succeed, and and it's very very much appreciated. And it's actually almost on one one man, Murose Kazumi, um, who's a living national treasure with her lacquerware, and the, and the, says that it goes back to Buddhist precepts and it goes back to the um, to the Heart Sutra. And he was actually, you know, talking about how this kind of dedication towards. Um, uh, single-minded dedication is something that actually eventually frees your soul. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a running theme in Miyazaki's films. It's um, he's quite uh, he's a pessimist and an optimist at the same time, if you can say that. It's, he, he seems to say that the big picture is bleak in a lot of his films. The kind of there's environmental despoliation, or there's war, or there's forces out of your control that are making the world a dark place. But on a small scale, you can make things good, and the way you can do that is by basically being passionate about something or being dedicated to something and um, the very one of the very last words in this film he sees the ghost of Naoko saying to him live mm -hmm. uh, it's also the catchphrase of the poster in Japan you have to live yeah and that's actually often the catchphrases of Japanese films often play on that word live mm. you should live we have to live or something like that it's, it's this ability to find a kind of life force or energy in your metier or whatever it is that you know that you've chosen um that makes that can redeem you <laughs> that, that's the one of the uniting themes of many of his works particularly the sort of uh post 9-11 post american invasion of iraq and, and, and yeah. afghanistan sort of films where he many of his production documents and what i love about miyazaki is he'd write this three or four page production document for all his films they, they'd come down to the world is dying but we must find reason to live within yeah. that, that simultaneous yeah. overarching pessimism but small scale optimism speaking of death and destruction i'd love to tie this into the what you're working on at the moment alex your grave of the fireflies book and um yeah. when we spoke about this film before we joked that this is secretly a takahata film this is the closest Miyazaki would come to making a takahata film mm. how do you see them overlapping particularly in the wind rises so i think we should explain what a takahata film is for those who don't know his films it's um he was the other great director at studio ghibli and uh, he made films that were more realist if you can say that it's such a general word but there, there were fewer elements of fantasy in his film and um, his overriding concern was always to kind of maintain an objectivity from his characters and try and understand them in all their complexity um, so he doesn't really do heroes brave young kind of heroes like Miyazaki often does um, and people say that The Wind Rises is in kind of Takahata vibe because it's set ostensibly in the real world. And Takahata did see this film and commented that of all Miyazaki's recent films, whatever he means by recent, this is the most watchable. <laughs> um, at the same time, I don't see it as a Takahata film mm -hmm. at all, really. Um, as I said, I had to get this distance, like almost like a brushed in kind of distance thinking, I can't get, I must never get too close to my characters, otherwise I'll be blinded by their qualities and faults. And I feel like 
Miyazaki is a little bit guilty of that in this film. He really does romanticize Jiro, especially you see him in his early years, uh, you know, defending little kids who are getting bullied. Those scenes seem pointless except to say, this guy is definitely a pacifist. Like, he really is, <laughs> like, believe me. And, and, and he kind of, he, I think it's like, he romanticizes him a bit too much, and as I said, he dedicates the film to him, which isn't necessary. And I think Takahata would disapprove of that. I think Takahata would have made a film with fewer dreams and less of a sense that Jiro has embarked on his own private fantasy of what his airplane should be, and more context that shows the problems of Jiro's enterprise with the plane. You mentioning that this close relationship between the filmmaker and the character makes me remember that when I rewatched this very recently, there are certain outfits that Jiro wears which are very similar to pictures of young Miyazaki that you see, this particular sort of sweater that he wears. And you, I, I think I might have shared this, these on Twitter. You can have these side-by-side -side photographs between Jiro and, and, and Hayao and they'd be wearing similar clothes. And I wonder if there's legs there with that reading at all. I, I like that um, uh, one thing we do with this podcast is that I curated your, your path through yeah. Ghibli. We didn't go chronologically. We didn't necessarily go by popularity. And we, I saved this one until the mid-teens, right? Mm. And that was on purpose because I feel that within The Wind Rises, there is a glimpse of almost every Miyazaki film to date. Yeah, th this felt like the culmination in a way of what we had been working towards. Mm -hmm. Our most recent series ended with a double bill of The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which would be our previous event or episode, and The Wind Rises tonight. And it was building up through the Takahata, who had never seen a film of his before mm -hmm. either, and just building up to what at the time was both of their final films. And I wonder, Alex, if once we get past, if, if you were able eventually to look past this political debate around the film, do you see the strains of DNA or the, the, the ambitions of Miyazaki, the animator, that maybe culminate in this, which at the time he said, this was going to be my final film, I can't make another one after this. I left everything on the, on the stage, what's the term there, I left everything on the table, whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, the obvious thing is flight. Miyazaki's always been obsessed with flight. He's been obsessed with this, harking back to this kind of uh, pre-war, pre-industrial Japan where the environment, everything is still in its right place and society hasn't encroached too far. And this film is a tribute to that as well mm -hmm. because you see these rolling green fields, you know, that are still relatively untouched by modern society. Um, so I think it, yeah. up until this point, for me, that the best single moment that Miyazaki had ever done was the uh, planes above the clouds in Porco Rosso. I agree. The, the, the yeah. plane graveyard sequence. I don't know if anyone out there has seen Porco Rosso, but it's your favourite of his films, mm -hmm. and I think. Yeah, and and it is this incredible moment where above the clouds there is this circling heaven of wonderful aeroplanes mm -hmm. and this feels like well the closest we would get i know there was a mooted porco rosso sequel yeah but stylistically that wonderful dreamlike approach to aeroplanes obviously this film is chock full of that so for me that was wonderful 
And there's, there's a, uh, we've, we've started with almost this deeper political, contextual, cultural reading of the film, but there are so many more fan-based readings or maybe superficial readings of this where you can play spot the reference. What I love is that the, um, the Italian aviation designer who's in this, Caproni, his, one of his most famous pieces of, of work was the Ghibli which is what, of course, they named the studio after, which is an amazing little sort of self-reference there. He doesn't mention it, but it's there for people who know to look for the, the science. I think what I got re-watching this film this week was um, the richness of the wind imagery and uh -huh. just the way that they play with this idea. So obviously the wind blows the hat, you know, it connects the lovers. Um, the wind is carried by the earthquake, so it's destruction as well. But it was it the sound the of the wind that came to the, the studio's name as well. So the, the, the Ghibli is also exactly. the Sirocco winds of the winds of the Northern Sahara. So yes, exactly. Yeah, it's the, it's the name of the exactly the wind, which then gave its name to the Italian plane, which then gave its name <laughs> yeah. to the studio. But it also occurred to me that winds, the, the planes that Giro designed, their their fate was to be used in as kamikaze planes in the dying days of the war. And kamikaze it means divine wind. It's named after the giant winds that repelled the Mongol invaders in the. 12th century or 13th century, whenever it was. Um, and so, you know, the, the wind has this kind of dark portent as well. And then one thing I noticed, which I never noticed before, was um, in, I think it was the Giro's boss's house, there's a panel on the ceiling with calligraphy on it. And the calligraphy says, great wind up above. And I looked it up and it's a Buddhist proverb, which essentially means uh, whatever you might feel like going on down here, up there, there's always a mighty wind blowing, and that mighty wind, the symbolic meaning is the compassion of the Buddha. <laughs> and so things will turn out all right. You know, you've always got the wind of the Buddha blowing above you. Uh, what else? Yeah, there's just wind everywhere. <laughs> all, <laughs> all around all, us at all times. But also what you're saying makes a lot of sense about this kind of revival, because really the whole point of the, the train trip and then that great um, Tokyo earthquake that mm. happened in the 20s, I mean, it really destroyed mm -hmm. uh, your huge swaths of Tokyo, and he clearly showed that. And then there was the comment that the, the city, when they were taking the, the riverboat, um, that the city had already been rebuilt. And uh, explaining a little bit about how, you know, the, the buildings were the same, but the streets were widened, but the city had, you know, suddenly been rebuilt. So it's almost, so this kind of, from disaster comes rebuilding, and then again comes the disaster. Yeah. And then, um, you know, perhaps a rebuilding after that. So it's this kind of cycle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost harks to Princess Kaguya's uh, final theme about the water wheel always turning, uh, this sense of the cycle of rebirth. When I saw, uh, I was very fortunate to see The Wind Rises at Venice, and then the following uh, year I saw The Tale of Princess Kaguya at, at Toronto Film Festival, but both making their international debuts. It's, they were the, the emotion of watching those two films are overwhelming because they both deal with death and legacies mm. and what may come next and how you'll be remembered. Mm. And they're two filmmakers very seriously dealing with those questions. And then Miyazaki now goes out and makes another film that's coming uh, out next year. Yeah. yeah, I did actually watch the trailer for this one and it was quite funny to see it marketed as the final masterpiece. The Wind Rises, <laughs> yes. Alex, uh, something we've asked almost every panellist uh, along, uh, along these Q&As it's just where Ghibli fits into their worldview. And I think your intersection between your 
you know, education and living in Japan and your Japan focus, but then also working almost on the, the deep industry side of animation. Where does Studio Leaf fit within all that? Is it seen as old hats? Is it seen as quite conventional? Are people excited for this new film next year? Yeah, I think uh, Ghibli still commands a lot of respect. Uh, I mean, massive respect. It's by far the most famous um, Japanese animation studio. In Japan, interestingly, Ghibli have always been at pains to differentiate themselves from the rest of the industry. They refuse to call their films anime. They say, we make uh, manga which basically means manga films. And that's not a comment really on their relationship with manga so much as just a useful way to differentiate themselves from other anime, which they see as more cheaply made, which is generally true. Uh, more obsessed with violence and robots and sex, which is also generally true. And um, more limited in the animation, kind of less smooth and sophisticated. So in Japan, Ghibli, well, it's you know, it's as it's even bigger and more important than it is here in the UK by far. But it kind of they 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 try to distinguish themselves as well as. Um, as for where it stands in the. I think uh, the, the thing I keep thinking about is what is going to happen now, because Miyazaki is working on another film, but surely that will be his last. <laughs> surely. <laughs> He's 78 now. Uh, Takahata died last year. And the studio is so identified with them that it can't go on in any recognizable form once they're both gone. And Miyazaki admits as much in this documentary about the making of The Wind Rises called uh, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. At one point, he's asked, what's, you know, he's standing on the rooftop of Studio Ghibli looking out over Tokyo and having a sentimental moment with a cigarette. Oh, <laughs> Always okay. the cigarettes. With the studio cat. <laughs> the studio cat. And he's asked, you know, what, what, what's going to happen to Studio Ghibli? And he says, it's all going to come crashing down. And the way he says it, just makes me think of Jiro looking at his, uh, you know, crashed planes at the end. This kind of fatalistic sense that you can try your best and yet in the end, bigger forces will always decide things on your behalf. Um, he, it's so clear in so many of his films and here he just states it explicitly in the film. Yeah. He's such a grump. <laughs> yeah, he's such a grump. Yeah, he really is. Did we have someone down here who wants to make a statement or a question? Would you have a microphone coming your way? It was really interesting to hear you talk about the film and about uh, the politics and all that because for me, I was just watching it as something nice, something interesting. And I, I understand why you would want to make it political, but I think it's also just a bit of history. Well, that was totally my reaction as well, because I, I didn't have any of this knowledge whatsoever. And that was purely my viewing of it until we went into a recording studio and I got my lecture about <laughs> all the context behind it. And that also speaks to how these films are released and marketed internationally, particularly in the United States and here. They're released by companies that when they were first, when their, fir their first films they released with Ghibli would be kids' films, family films. And then they enter into these year-long deals, multi-picture deals, and then they're given this film. And they think, how do I release this at the Easter holidays for the kids? <laughs> and th but then that's how it's presented. You have a poster where it's a guy looking up at the clouds with his hat being blown off his head. And we don't see that. It's, it's worth saying here that um, Toshio Suzuki, the producer I mentioned, who basically guides Ghibli's marketing strategy, um, was worried that this film would only appeal 
to men. So he packaged a four-minute trailer, four minutes, <laughs> um, which only shows, but basically almost entirely shows the love, the romance scenes, and played that in cinemas in the run-up to the release of the film. And he credits that strategy with like doubling the audience and bringing in loads more money than the film expected to make. To appeal to... To appeal to women. He, sa he said as much himself, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety, even in Japan, where Miyazaki is a god, um, that this was not really a Miyazaki film. Like, what, what, it's too adult, it's too realistic. Like, how do you market it? Same in the US. I think Disney normally distribute Ghibli films, but there they put it under the Touchstone label, which is more like adult-oriented yeah. stuff. But I, just to go back to you know your point, I I do think though um, we have we can read it on many different levels as anything can be read on many different levels, but it does show a very interesting swath of Japanese history or landscape, maybe not history so much as landscape from the 20s through the 30s, mm. and um, the the poverty that it showed, the people on the railway line, the build-up. I mean, it, it was very, very hard mm. in, the, in the 20s and 30s, and I think you mm. feel that. I mean, you get a real sense of, it seems incredibly accurate, um, the, the, the sh drawings of Tokyo. Mm. The signs, you know, even, you know, when talking about, you know, the, the you know, the really old-fashioned type of cake that he had purchased, you know, and tried to give to mm. the, um, you know, the two children that were waiting uh, for their parents. And they, um, you know, th that's that's just a really kind of retro cake that was popular in the early um, early uh, 20th century. And, and you know, mm. so by saying, oh, you've got interesting eating habits. I mean, you can still buy it in Tokyo, but it's 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 really, it's like Victorian sponge cake, you know, but it's, uh, you know, so I think that there, you can enjoy the this experience looking at it. Um, but it's, it's a slice of history, but it's also intended to reflect the modern day. Um, Miyazaki often drew parallels in interviews between the 30s, which you're seeing in the film, and now he says, you know, there was rising militarism, nationalism then, now there's the risk of the same. There was a trauma for the country then, which was the earthquake. And then recently there's been the earthquake and the tsunami in 2011. There was a recession then. Japan's in an economic slump now. And he seems to be saying to, you know, to all the people out there, especially the young people watching this film, this has all happened before. And there's a way to make life worth living, which is design military airplanes <laughs> to, 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 find, to find your passion and, and, and try and survive, basically live, as they say, yeah. That's what's fascinating about Miyazaki, though. You can enjoy these films on the level. I, when I first saw it, I enjoyed it on a similar level to you. But then if you think about anyone similar in the Western film industry, Ken Loach or somebody who may be making grand political statements about the here and now, even when he makes period films set mm. in 19th century Ireland and he's talking about now. He, you can't, they're not necessarily films that can be enjoyed by people from ages six to 60, are they? And Ken Loach is much more didactic though. <laughs> no, 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 of course, I'm yeah. just talking about, yeah, the, yeah. the way you're talking about Miyazaki, like he's saying this and he's laying out these arguments and these themes, but there are so, there are, there's a yeah. whole swaths of the audience. I don't know what you're saying, Michael. Him. I would go Teletubbies cares <laughs> every day. <laughs> exactly. But I think the, 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 this film is so complex and nuanced that not many people could actually make it because it would be too difficult to pitch. And Miyazaki's just reached a point in his career where he can make whatever he wants because he's, his films are so popular. And 
you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't have an editor. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he does, but he can, he can more or less write the script as he wants, follow his instincts, say what he wants, and it will be approved. Sorry, may I, may I say something else? Of course. So, because I want to defend Giro a little bit. So he was studying um, in 1923, uh, because that's when the Great Earthquake was. So he didn't set out to make military airplanes. He just set out to make airplanes. Mm. Well, and, and then I Japan became more military in mm. 1931, and, and, and on and on. So mm. what, what choice did he have? Should well, he not have made airplanes? And, that, and he's clearly, I think he's, he's obviously against the use that they have because there's, the bit, there's a great bit when they're designing them and they're failing. And he says, well, they'd just work if we could take the guns off. And I think that's that's Jiro's thought process. Or is that Miyazaki's hand tilting it towards the the idealization of of industry without the military industrial? I, I don't know how much choice he had mm. in you know Jiro, the actual Jiro. I mean, it's it it's it in build up to the wartime. Um, for example, for ceramicists, if you wanted to have your kiln, if you wanted to fire any ceramics, because ceramics take a lot of resource, water, wood, a lot of th resource, you had to fire works that were for the war effort. Mm -hmm. So you had to fire um, ceramics that are hand grenades or landmines and all of that. And mm -hmm. potters didn't necessarily want to make those yeah. works, um, but they had to work and they couldn't fire other ceramics unless they fired those ceramics. So I, I just don't know when you start to look, it's, it's almost easy for us to think that there were some choices that could have been made. I think it's much harder if you're in that period. Um, That's really fascinating. Thank you so much for those comments. Any final comments before? It's just one at the back. Right at the back yeah. there, right second row. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I just wanted to actually just follow on from that because it feels like the one thing that you haven't talked about so much is Jiro and the representation of him in the film it's he's it seems I mean you know this first time I've seen it but I mean there seems to be this kind of both this sort of romanticism to him but also this kind of awkwardness 
that comes out regularly in sort of social situations. And I'm not sure whether that's just a translation issue in that, you know, I'm misunderstanding how that character would come across to a Japanese audience or whether that is sort of like baked into the character. And if that is also one of these kind of strategies for making him seem um, a bit more sympathetic to us as an audience. Well, there's one very specific way that he's awkward. He's voiced by a non-professional voice actor. He's actually voiced by Hideaki Anno, who is an animator that worked with Miyazaki early in his career and went off. And he's, he's almost the only Miyazaki protege who went and found, plowed his own furrow. Yeah. He went and created Neon Genesis Evangelion in his, in his own right. Mamoru Oshii as well. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but Alex, Nicole, any thoughts on that about the sympathetic nature of Jiro? Yeah, it, it, he's almost um, sociopathically <laughs> shut off from his emotions. I, I, the, the thing that struck me when I watched it recently was he, I don't really buy his love affair with Naoko. He, when he sees her, <laughs> he doesn't remember her at all from the train. <laughs> and yet later on, he confessed to her that he's always loved her since the moment he saw her on the train. <laughs> I don't know if that's just bad scripting or if that's deliberately meant to say something about him actually being quite insincere when he says he loves her. And that's certainly sustained by other things he does, like keeping on working and smoking while she's dying next to him. Don't, don't you think that you know, he's living a fantasy life? And so in a way, um, you know, from the very beginning, when he used the very early scene when he um, has his, you know, he's a young boy and, you know, he has this fantasy of flying off. And mm. so everything is always kind of, it, it, you, sometimes it's hard to see what is the reality and what is the fantasy. It's always slightly blurred. And yeah. so, in a way, this relationship with Naoko could be, you know, it's, it is part of his fantasy. And, and so it just kind of almost becomes that. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. There's yeah. this, you know, so I don't know whether it's completely cynical. I think it, it's just, he just creates this fantasy of this relationship. And it's telling that his friend um, says, oh, I'm going off to get married tomorrow yeah. mm. and because you need to get married. And so it's almost like this idea that, oh, you know, this is what you need to, yeah, to yeah. go forward. And so yeah. then he does that and creates this, yeah. you know, fantasy. So I don't, I, I didn't see it as cynical. I felt it's just, he just doesn't have a blurring between the reality and, and not. And that's why he could not see that his wife was dying and he couldn't see what was going to happen. Yeah. I find it really interesting, Alex, that you mentioned that that subplot was almost mandated by Suzuki because I feel that... He, that Miyazaki's not interested in that character of Naoko. Well, you she think just of, gets forgotten about for well, an you th hour. You think yeah. about yeah. his entire filmography up to yeah. this point, Kiki's Literary Service, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, great female characters, both in lead and supporting roles that are allowed to do whatever they want, break out of all societal boundaries. This is a character who he marries and then she dies. Yeah. In, in contrast to his sister, who is so full of life and yeah. can go and ha have her his own sister career. is much more Miyazaki-ish than... Yeah, I wonder if okay. it's just that he's not as interested in that. Yeah, she seems like a vessel for just to kind of reinforce this idea that it was a difficult time, tuberculosis was everywhere, and, uh, you know, the, the, Jiro was battling against greater forces than he could manage. Disease, war... The planes are doomed, Naoko's doomed. It feels like he's just trying to kind of symbolically tie it together. And I wonder what the film would be like if the Naoko uh, plotline was cut. It would be shorter. Speaking of things running long. Speaking yes, of short. Yes. <laughs> we, 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 we do need to wrap up now. We've had such a 
really fascinating panel. Thank you so much for your questions. <laughs> Alex, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And one more thing. Behind these screenings has been Bryony Smith, uh, one of the programmers for the adult program here. Thank you so much, Bryony. Thank you, Bryony. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a safe journey home. Thank you to Nicole and Alex there for joining us on our last of our British Museum live episodes. It's been a very fun summer, hasn't it, Jake? It really has. Podcasts truly are beautiful dreams, aren't they, Michael? <laughs> you, you, you've used that before, I think. That's yeah, the first I'll time. use it again. <laughs> but what are we going to do now? Is this? Are we retiring? No, not just yet. We, we can't do that. This is, this is a Ghibli show. No one ever retires, really. <laughs> We're going to be brought back out of retirement for a final miniseries of films. Well, let's, ne- let's never say final. No. But we do have a handful of films left in the current Ghibli library that we need to get to yeah and uh I mean these are some true deep cuts I know you've shielded me from a lot of stuff you front-loaded the series with the big hitters and now we're really getting down into it into the murky muddy waters exactly the likes of Ocean Waves My Neighbours the Yamadas some pre-Ghibli films like Little Norse Prince do you like Lupin we've got Castle of Cagliostro coming up Jake do you have any understanding of what's what you're in for well what I'm really excited about is as we all know Tales from Earthsea, a very good film. <laughs> and I'm just excited to hear what the director's up to next. Exactly. So we do have From Up on Poppy Hill as well. You're teasing teasing very well there. But anyway, in the meantime, if you want to keep up with us, we are both on Twitter. You can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 